was confused by titles this week, so I chose three. Two of them I wrote in the bulletin. Crossing the Threshold, Pentecost, Take Three, and A New Beginning. Three titles. You can take your pick in a few minutes as to which one you like. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, gracious, gracious Lord and Savior, gracious Jesus Christ, Spirit of God, you who have authored these words, we pray now, help us, your people, living a long time and a long distance from where these things took place, to see in them our very life, to rejoice in what you have given to us in saving us from our sins. Help us to understand it well. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, my three titles, here they are. Crossing the Threshold. That describes this passage that we have before us today. Literally, when you cross the threshold, you are in a different place. At the point that you cross the threshold, you are either in the house or then you are out of the house. But in any case, in or out, your location has changed and the way you describe your position has changed. Idiomatically, your life has changed when you cross the threshold. Another phrase that has been used by others to describe this passage, if you would prefer a more classical allusion to what is taking place here, is that this is the early church crossing its Rubicon. And after they cross this river, there will be no turning back. Pentecost, take three. This passage that is before us today has been called Pentecost for the Gentiles, and that is an apt title for what we see taking place. So it is. With each step, each of the major steps that we have seen in the gospel, from the gospel going to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria, and now at least ethnically, not geographically, but at least ethnically, going to the ends of the earth with the calling of these Gentiles, we have seen this exact pattern presented to us by Luke. He's recorded it with all of the same things taking place in each one of these major steps as the triune God gathers up the lost sheep of Israel and others besides. A new beginning. This is surely a new beginning for the church of Jesus Christ. In the Greek translation, your Bible begins with these words, en-arche, not uh, anarchy, en-arche, in the beginning. The Gospel of John begins with exactly the same words, in the beginning, en-arche, and in chapter 11, verse 15, where Peter is reporting these things to the other brothers and sisters who are in Jerusalem, he says, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us, anarche, in the beginning. This is a new beginning. The Spirit is doing something new, and He's doing something new again. Jesus, in this passage, is making all things new. 
So my fellow Gentiles, my fellow goyim, those of us who are not ethnically Jewish, in this passage lives our hope, our birth, our threshold crossed, our Pentecost, and our new beginning. It's a big text, and I want to keep our structure for today's sermon. The text is so rich in and of itself. I want to keep it very simple as we go through it. And so the first thing that we'll look at in this text is preparation. A couple of weeks ago, I preached on the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. And we talked about how in that passage, both in the events that take place and in the way that Luke records it, we are allowed by God, by Luke, to see the arrangements, to see how God worked it out, the industrial chic of the passage. You get to see the bones, the piping, the way God brings together people and events. And so, too, here in this passage, we see the preparations, the arrangements that are made specifically by every member of the Trinity to bring together all of these people at exactly these places in exactly these times to affect the events that took place. Now, of course, there's a sense to which you can look at a passage like this and see that the preparations took place, 40 AD, whenever exactly this event took place, but they, they took place at this particular time, but the reality is that the preparation for this passage began an arche. It began at the beginning. In fact, the reality is, the Word of God tells us that the preparations for this passage began before the beginning. God the Father had always purposed that He was going to call and elect and choose a people for himself, that he was going to redeem those people through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and apply this renewing work to them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And from the very beginning of the Bible, from the very opening commands that God gives to mankind, we see that the intention of God has never changed. It has always been to have a people who will glorify Him over the face of all the earth. At Babel, where mankind had gathered together and said, we will resist these purposes of God. We will not seek to glorify His name. We'll seek a name for ourselves, and we don't want to be scattered, so let's build this tower so we won't be scattered. God said, I am interrupting that. I will fulfill my purposes, and He scatters humanity around all the earth. And at that point, He confuses the languages. He confuses the languages of mankind as a blessing. Is it a curse? Yes. Is it a blessing? Yes. The blessing is so that we do not come together and build sin upon sin that would result in our own destruction 
through our own common conversation with one another. And so God confuses the languages and puts people all around the earth. And the very next thing that takes place in Scripture is that God chooses from within then all of those people speaking different languages, one person, one family, one nation. But as God chooses the one, the purpose is never only for the redemption of that one. The intention of God is always and has always been that that one would be a light through which God would shine the glory of his presence throughout all of the earth. 2,000 years ago, from this date right here, from Acts chapter 10 and 11, God had chosen the one family, and now is the fulfillment of the work of the one family. A man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, uh, a great phrase, the Italian cohort. Uh, I would rather not know what it means. Unfortunately, I know what it means. I just like the way it says Italian cohort. But what it actually means is a centurion is a commander of 100. A cohort is 600. So there were six centurions for a cohort of 600, and then a legion is 6,000. I think we should call our men's ministry uh, maybe the Conchi cohort. <laughs> but in any case... A centurion is there of the Italian cohort. And here's the description that we have, and it's repeated, of course, several times in various ways about Cornelius. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Wow. What a description of a person. Now, just to be clear, he's not circumcised, right? That's the point of this whole story. He's not circumcised yet. So he hasn't, if you will, given himself fully to Judaism. He hasn't converted. He doesn't observe all of the Mosaic law. But clearly what we get the sense of is God has been preparing things. This doesn't happen out of thin air. God has been preparing things, and he's been preparing Cornelius and family, cohort, in particular. But clearly, Cornelius is not an abject pagan. God has been working in him. God has been calling in him. And when you read this, this description of him, you, you kind of think to yourself, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar. Haven't I heard this somewhere before? And the answer is, of course, yes. Most recently, where you heard of something almost just like this is with another centurion whom the Lord Jesus met. And the description that we get of this centurion is that he was a man just like this centurion. In fact, when people come to Jesus and report about him and say, this, this guy's a really devout guy, what they say is, he is worthy for you to come into his house. Now, if you think back just a little bit further, you think, okay, this story sounds a lot like that story. But now I've got to take you back one step further, because the other one that it sounds a lot like 
is a lot further back in Scripture, Naaman the Syrian, to whom Elisha ministered. I'm just going to read you one verse, 2 Kings 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Last week, I tried to show us how the events that took place, the healing and then the raising of Tabitha, paralleled Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus, and now Peter. That this centurion follows this is no accident. It's one more confirmation to say, this is exactly what you should expect. This is what God is doing. He's calling people from outside of Israel to himself. So Luke says to us, see the connections, see the preparation that has been taking place over the course of millennia. Patterns that I've been working out, people that I've been working through. And all of those preparations bring us to this day, this ninth hour of the day. Be certain then that God is at work, that what you have set before you here is no mere coincidence. It's not coincidence that he happens to be a centurion, a devout man, and not one of Israel. Cornelius responds immediately and appropriately to the vision that he had, and we, we learn as we read through this, a couple of things are kind of revealed to us along the way. So he responds appropriately by sending the men off to go and get Peter. And then in verse 33, we read that Cornelius has been commanded to listen to what Peter will say when Peter comes back. And then a little bit further on in chapter 11, verse 14, we see that Cornelius and his household will receive a message by which they will be saved. That's what Cornelius is told. Go get him, listen to him, because by what he says, you will be saved. Cornelius and his good life didn't save him. It was a great description, and it didn't save him. One writer puts it like this, a good life is acceptable only when it leads to a recognition of its own inadequacy and acceptance of the gospel. A good life leads to a recognition of its own inadequacy. And as much as we can stay here, think back to the earlier centurion. When the people come to Jesus about and on behalf of this centurion, they describe him as a worthy man. When the centurion speaks to Jesus, he says, I am unworthy to have you come into my household. The centurions get it. They may be good, they may be respectable, but it's not enough. In the meantime, 
Peter is also being prepared. The next day, Peter receives his vision while praying. And of course, the vision, I'm not going to try and describe it in detail. You've got the sheets, the animals, and the command to eat. A seismic paradigm shift is taking place, and Peter is confused, or to use the great word that's in the text, Peter is perplexed. How can these things be taking place? And he refuses to eat the meat in the vision. And as we see in this story, the vision that Peter's being given concerns not only what he should eat and what he shouldn't eat, what's clean and unclean in terms of animals, people, diet, but also with whom he should associate, people. People can be clean or unclean as well. And, and so we have to ask a question here, because it's one that is asked of this text. Why is Peter resistant to the vision? Why is his first response by no means? He recognizes that something significant is taking place in terms of the vision. He recognizes the authority that's going on, but he refuses. By no means will I partake of this. Well, here are some of the various things that you hear said in response to this. Why doesn't Peter want to eat? Perhaps Peter is being persnickety, a legalist, pharisaical in his attitudes. Perhaps Peter is close-minded to the things that God wants him to do, and Peter should have been more open-minded in this scenario. Or perhaps, and this would be the real one in our day and age, that would be seen as the real problem for Peter, perhaps Peter is prejudiced. Perhaps the reality is Peter's a racist, and he doesn't want any part of what is going on right here, and he doesn't want any part of going into that household because he's racially prejudiced. Uh, we don't need to defend Peter's honor, okay? Peter's all about, Bible's all about sullying Peter's reputation. So I have no need to defend Peter's honor by standing up here, but to all of those things that I just said, my response to them is, bah, nothing of those are what are happening here. Peter is doing exactly what Peter should do. He's being faithful. When we read of Daniel, who got taken away to Babylon, and we read of him not wanting to eat of the good stuff that was offered to him there, but rather let me eat this other stuff so that I can be faithful to my God, we praise him. We say, here's a man who is trying to be faithful before God, and Peter here is no less. He's a man trying to be faithful. I understand, God, that you have set up these things. I can't contradict what you have told me. That's not legalism. That's not being pharisaical. It's just being obedient. What Peter doesn't realize is that he is standing on the threshold of an epic shift or rather, an epoch shift. Things are changing under his feet. Faithfulness 
and faithful obedience to God are changing right beneath him. The household of God is getting a really big addition put on it. And that which used to be the threshold between in and out isn't the threshold between in and out anymore because an addition has come on to the household of God. Practically speaking, what that means is this. Hospitality between Jews and Gentiles is now possible. Peter can host the messengers. And more significantly, Peter can go into their house. The centrality of hospitality as indicative of how you receive the message. Peter can cross the threshold. He can say to them, come on in and stay with me. Because God's changing things. I don't know what's going on. I'm confused, but come in and stay with me. And I'm going with you. And I'll come in to your household. There had been a boundary. One of the younger members of our congregation, I won't single her out by name so I don't uh, embarrass her, but she is fond, especially in evening services, of at some point flinging her arms across this aisleway right here and saying to her pastor in her best Gandalfian imitation, you shall not pass. (laughs) And she says, you have to know the magic word. And I said, okay, is the magic word Revelation 3.20? I thought that was kind of clever. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. In my little story, this, it still remains shut. Uh, <laughs> Password is, it's ever-changing, but it's usually open, open sesame. But nevertheless, for sermonic purposes, Revelation 3.20, hospitality in and of itself allows for a greater inclusion, which is to say participation in the family. The preparations are made. And then the proclamation beginning at verse 34. Peter understands Truly, I understand. I get it now. I truly understand that God shows no partiality. In other words, what is easily forgotten by Old Covenant Jew, by New Covenant follower of Christ, is that God's choosing and God's particularity in His choosing is always by grace and not due to some innate, inherent, inherent specialness of a particular person or race. He chose one nation for all nations. And he chose his son 
to be his servant to restore the lost tribes of Israel, the house of Judah, and the nations. He particularly chose him for the salvation of all. Jesus, though sent to Israel, as you look at this preaching, as the word that he sent to Israel, verse 36, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, that is sent to Israel. Jesus Christ, parentheses in your Bible, he is Lord of all. Now that phrase rolls right off of our tongue. Jesus is Lord of all. Easy for us to say. Jesus is Lord of all. But that phrase now means more to Peter than it did 24 hours earlier. Because now what he says is, whoa, 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 whoa. he's Lord of all. Not just of the circumcised, but Lord of the uncircumcised as well. And Peter then preaches a message that is familiar to us. Jesus, the only truly good man. The message that Jesus proclaimed, the works that Jesus did, overcoming the devil, healing, overcoming the death on the tree with a bodily resurrection. And by the way, we ate and drank with him. We had hospitality with him. We shared it with him. He is the one, Cornelius and family and friends, who can forgive your sin. The good man needed forgiveness. The good man gave alms, prayed regularly, devout, needed salvation. In the name of Jesus Christ. And with that, the proclamation is cut short. Pro preparation, proclamation, and then confirmation. Peter can't get out his conclusion. At least that's how it seems to me as I read this. Peter has a way of concluding sermons like this, right? You know what it is. Therefore, repent and believe the good news and be baptized and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Get in his application point right at the end. He doesn't even get it in. He cannot get it in because it's as if the Spirit interrupts. Because like a pregnant woman two weeks past her due date, the Spirit cannot hold back the new birth any longer. Thousands of years we've been waiting for this moment. The Spirit poised. The old wineskins are bursting at the seams. The clouds will retain no more moisture and the rain of the gospel comes down on Cornelius and his household, and the reign of King Jesus begins in their lives. What a day for Cornelius and his family, and Peter and company, 
are so amazed by the visible confirmation, the descent of the Spirit upon them, and the fact that they are speaking in tongues and glorifying God, another Pentecost just like we experienced it ourselves. And he says, don't hold back the external confirmation. Baptize them. Baptize these people right now and give them that confirmation also. There's one more level of confirmation, and it, of course, is the fact that comes out in chapter 11, this radical shift that is taking place. It meets with skepticism in Jerusalem. That shouldn't surprise us. Everything in Acts has met with skepticism. What happened at the first Pentecost? Are you guys drunk? Did you get into the wine a little bit early this morning? What happened when they said the, uh, the Samaritans are receiving the gospel? We've got to send out Peter and John to see what's going on out here. We really doubt that this has happened. When Paul's converted, nobody believes it. Ananias doesn't believe it. People in Damascus don't believe it. People in Jerusalem don't believe it. They're skeptical of it. And so it's not surprising for us to find that the circumcision party... Now, in one sense, the circumcision party is everybody. <laughs> okay? it's every, every, everybody's circumcised in Jerusalem. All the men are circumcised in Jerusalem. But it could be an emerging group of Pharisees in particular who are pointing to this in particular application of the law of Moses. But in any case, it, it doesn't surprise us to find the circumcision party being circumspect, critical, I kind of doubt it. Peter, what did you do? A, why did you preach? B, how could you possibly have gone into their house and eaten with them? You know that this is forbidden. And so Peter relates the story. He gives the implication, and the, the, the implication will be worked out by the church for years to come. This is such a seismic shift that it's going to take years to figure out, okay, who are we now? What does this mean for us as the people of God? How do we go about living now together? And what does it mean to follow God? It'll take years to work this out. But at this juncture, at least at this juncture, everybody recognizes the hand of God who has given to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Lord, perhaps said Cornelius and others there, why was I a guest? And so say we, why? Why were we guests? Why did we get to come into this house? It's not our house. It's a Jewish house. Why was I a guest? Why could Peter be a guest? Therefore, good people, bad people, Jewish people, and all you non-Jewish people, all people repent and believe the good news and receive the forgiveness of your sins and the life that comes in Jesus Christ. This was a good day for Cornelius. Everything changed on this day. It was a brand new beginning.
Repent and believe. To those of you who are here and who already know the Lord Jesus Christ have had this day of sorts in your life, and I give you this application, smile. Rejoice. This is our story. It's our birthday story. It's our hope. It's our joy. Jesus added a wing to the house that was bigger than the house. Stretched out the tent and brought us in. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But I have a second application for you, and it's from a hymn. A couple of hymns have been colliding in my head all week. And a line from a hymn says this, Fling wide the portals of your heart. And smashing it together with another line that doesn't come next, let new and nobler life begin. May we open, fling wide the portals of our hearts. May we open wide the doors of our church to those from every nation. May we open wide the doors of our homes to bring in the stranger, to bring in the hurting. There is a glorious expansiveness of the magnanimity of God that is on display in this passage that is revealed to us here. That magnanimity has included us, invited us. May, by God's grace, it also extend out from us as well.